Acts chapter 9, as we make our way through the book of Acts, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, discovering the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, talked about these things as we've gone through, and we're seeing the boldness that has come in the lives of men like Philip and Stephen and Peter and John, and, the, and that's the real thing we look for as the evidence of the filling with the Holy Spirit is that boldness. And it's easy to get distracted by other things and some of the more miraculous things. And those things exist and they're true. But what I see and I think what God continues to point our attention to is the boldness of a Stephen, the boldness of a Peter in the face of persecution, the boldness of a Philip to go down some desert road to minister to one man on his way back from Jerusalem to Ethiopia. So we see the boldness as we go through and see the work of the Spirit in the lives of people that God is touching. And we're going to be introduced to, reintroduced I guess would be better, uh, to Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And you'll see me and hear me flipping back and forth between Saul of Tarsus and the Apostle Paul. And that's accidental. I'm just so used to calling him the Apostle Paul. And because we all live on this side of the story, like we know what happens in chapter 9, but at this time they didn't know. So for us, calling him the Apostle Paul is very common and easy because we know the rest of the story. I'm going to try to call him Saul of Tarsus. And for those of you that are going, what is he, schizophrenic? What's going on? It's the same person. God gets a hold of his life changes his life, and changes his name from Saul, which meant one who is sought after, changes his name from Saul to Paul, which means little. And along with that, changes his life, changes his direction, and, uh, and the rest, as we say, is history. So excuse me for going back and forth, and I know you'll be able to hang with me, so I thought I'd share that as we, uh, as we begin today. Verse 1, chapter 9 begins with, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. That would have been Caiaphas, the same high priest that was presiding over Jesus' mock trial, I guess you could call it. He went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we open up with this recollection of this man, Saul. We're returning to him. We've seen Philip's ministry in chapter 8, the revival in Samaria, and then Philip being called to minister to this one Ethiopian eunuch on, on, the, uh, on the, this desert road. And now we're reintroduced to Saul. If you've been around here for a little while, you'll remember that Saul was there when Stephen preached to this group of Jewish leaders. And the sermon was so convicting and the sermon was so challenging, he, I guess, accused them of resisting the Holy Spirit. And they gnashed their teeth at him and ratted him and ended up stoning him to death. And that's where we're first introduced to this Saul. He was one of them. He's in his anywhere between 20 to 40. He's a young man, youngish man. And he is part of this Jewish leading group. They laid their clothes at his feet. Where While they were stoning Stephen, while they picked up the stones to stone him, Saul was there, and the Bible says he was consenting to the death of Stephen. And although Stephen died there and he was buried, that incident has hung on in the heart of this man, Saul. 
Not just watching the way Stephen died, asking him, asking God to forgive these men just as Christ had. Not just watching him look up to heaven and have a vision of Christ waiting to receive him, standing there uh, next to God at the, on the throne. But even what he said, the sermon he preached, the accusations Stephen made from the Old Testament scriptures, these things began to gnaw and continue to gnaw at the heart of Saul. And I think in an attempt to quiet that voice, he has gone and become even more extreme in his persecution. Before Stephen's death, there was some specific persecution. Remember, Peter got put in jail, and, and the apostles got put in jail, and then they were you know, beaten a little bit, roughed up, and told, don't you preach the gospel anymore, and they went out rejoicing. But then after Stephen's death, this persecution heightens and it becomes generalized, so much so that the, the residents, the Christians that are living in Jerusalem, get scattered. They start to flee for their lives. And they go to Judea and Samaria, and some of them make their way to Damascus, which, by the way, is uh, known by many to be the oldest city in, in the world. It's one of the oldest inhabited cities in the world. Still there today in Syria. It's been on the news quite a bit. And the street that we'll mention here, the straight street that uh, Ananias is told to go to, that's, that street still exists in Damascus today. Very old, old city. It's 135 miles from Jerusalem. So Saul had wreaked havoc like a wild animal tearing its prey in and around Jerusalem, but that wasn't enough for him. He had to go further and chase down some of those that had escaped. You can imagine and ask yourself, what is driving this guy? I mean, you're going to disagree with people in life about religious things. You're going to meet a neighbor who's Islamic or a friend who's Buddhist. And you're going to disagree about things of faith, but that doesn't mean you want to kill them. What is it that, that drives this? Because it says here, he's still breathing threats. And the word breathing, maybe your Bible says breathing out threats. But actually, the Greek says it's breathing in. He's breathing. He's, de he's deriving sort of his life from persecuting and from killing and from torturing. Both Notice, both men and women. He didn't care. This guy was a ruthless terrorist. And he recounts his life, his life before Christ, Many times, he, twice more in the book of Acts, he'll share his testimony. And all through the epistles that he's written, you'll see him share shades and aspects of his life before Christ. That he was an insolent man, a violent man. That he, tried to perse he persecuted the church to try to destroy it. And I think in some ways he lived with that knowledge and that guilt of what he had done. But it did not stop him from ministry. And we'll get to that as we go on through. So he's still breathing threats and murders, threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so he goes to the high priest. He's getting authority to go to Damascus, 135 miles. And so he's looking for people, notice, who are of the way. Of the way? What way? The way. Jesus said, I am what? You know, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the early church... The people weren't called Christians, they were called followers of the way. And I like that, it's pretty definitive, isn't it? Not one way or a way, the way. Followers of the way. And it's not till later on that the derogatory term, maybe you didn't know that, Christian 
being a Christian was, at the time that it was coined, was a derogatory term. It was not a good term. And it means little Christs. And so they would tease Christians by calling them little Christs. And we'll see that develop. That's actually here in the pages of the book of Acts. Later on, we'll get to that. But for now, they're called the way. And it doesn't matter, men or women, he brings them bound to Jerusalem. So a couple things I want to notice before we move on. Number one is the extent of Saul's terrorism, tearing families apart. He is feared. He has a reputation. Ananias, who will end up ministering to him, has heard of his reputation. And he is destroying families, killing people, bringing them to Jerusalem to be tried for this crime of blasphemy. What is it in the heart of a guy like this that makes him do a thing like that? What is it in the, in the heart of a terrorist from Afghanistan or from Syria to, to fly planes into buildings, to kill people? What is it? And so we might wrongly assume that they're psychotic, crazy, deranged. Now, I'll be the first to say they're crazy, absolutely, but not in the way we might think. There's been a lot of research done on these things. Uh, Scientific American did an article, along with many other articles I could have chosen from, but this one was called Inside the Terrorist Mind. And I'm sharing this for a reason, because I want to ask some questions about the Apostle Paul or excuse me, Saul of Tarsus. If you were to go online, you could find at Amazon.com more than 800 books on psychology and terrorism now. According to a psychological database called PsychInfo, there are more articles on terrorism that have been published since 2001 than in the previous 120 years. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security is doling out $12 million to set up a group of scientists to study Terrorism, the origins, dynamics, and and psychological impact. Remember, the um, theme of terrorists is kill one, scare 10,000. And so the issue isn't to kill people necessarily. The issue is to cause widespread fear. And certainly, Saul of Tarsus was doing that among Christians. He had them scattering everywhere like prey animals. Well, the research that they're doing now as they have people in prison and as they're catching, you know, the terrorists and interviewing them, what they're finding is that they're not crazy in the terms that we might think. These are not people that have antisocial personalities or this or some other personality disorder that would, that would be uh, found in the DSM-5 or whatever psychological uh, manual is available today. This is what the article says. Even suicide bombers are sane in most respects. After interviewing some 250 members of Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza from 1996 to 1999, the UN worker and journalist reported that none of these young would-be bombers struck her as depressive or despondent. A former forensic psychiatrist from University of Pennsylvania determined that these individuals are far from brainwashed, socially isolated, and hopeless fighters. 90% of them came from caring, intact families. 63% had gone to college, compared with the 5 to 6% background rate in the developing world. Similarly, the suicide hijackers of 9-11 were well-educated. Three of them were in graduate school and the offspring of well-off Saudi and Egyptian families. This is what this man from Pennsylvania said. He said, these are the best and brightest of their societies in many ways. 
And terrorists are generally completely normal people, people just like you and me. And that can be hard to believe, right? I mean, that can, be, that can sound crazy. And the reason I say this is because I want you to remember that we're talking about Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul. And Saul of Tarsus was a brilliant man. He had the best teachers available. He was sat at the feet of this guy called Gamaliel, one of the most notable teachers in all Judaism at the time. And Gamaliel said about Saul of Tarsus, I can't keep him in books. I can't keep enough. The more I give him, the more he reads. He has a voracious appetite for reading. Well-educated, good family, brought up in the Jewish faith, just like we would see of the terrorists we're talking about for today. Not crazed lunatics that are somehow, you know, off kilter, absolutely. But Saul of Tarsus becomes the Apostle Paul and this guy, as a Christian, redeemed those gifts, his mind, now given to Christ. He pens more of the New Testament than any other author. Thirteen books of the New Testament. Some of the things that he wrote are probably more quoted than anything else in the history of human language. Some of the things that have been quoted by the church in history. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. How many times have we referred to that verse? How many times have we have referred to quotes in Romans? Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Do you think that was just invented in a vacuum? These have come from the life and the pen of the Apostle Paul moved by the Spirit. In fact, his book of Romans, the book of Romans, has, been, has contributed to more people getting saved and more people turning their lives to Christ than probably any book of the Bible. And it's still used in law schools today to demonstrate reasonable argument. The, the book of Romans, I can't wait till we get done with Acts and get Romans is a phenomenal book to read. And this is what Saul of Tarsus went on to do as, as the Apostle Paul. So I'm just trying to establish that he's a brilliant, he's not a crazed lunatic, he's a brilliant guy. But what is it in his heart? What voice is he trying to quiet? You see, war on the outside usually indicates a war on the inside. And I think Stephen's sermon has touched him deeply and he is trying to resist it with everything he can, thinking if he can just quiet that voice, that he'll have peace, he won't have peace. The zeal that Saul of Tarsus had for killing Christians becomes the same zeal he has for promoting the gospel. I love to see when God grabs a hold of a person, you know, you, you maintain the same personality, don't you? I mean, he changes some characteristics in your life, but you're still you. And God created you in a certain specific way, just as he created Saul of Tarsus in that certain way, knowing that at a certain time in human history, he would redeem that for his own purposes and then use him that way that he did. Being zealous, there's a lot of things you can accuse Saul of Tarsus of, but one of them is not lukewarmness. You can't accuse him of being casual about his beliefs. The beliefs he held were held firmly, so much so that he was willing to kill for them. But think about this, if you would. Maybe you've watched peewee football. Maybe you've had someone that played peewee football. Maybe you played peewee football. It's just hysterical to watch because none of the uniforms fit. Everything's falling off all over the place. The helmet is like halfway down the head, and they, they got to keep, you know, it keeps falling down. They got to pick it back up. And then there's the one or two kids that mostly ride the bench, and they get to play a little bit at the end of the game, and, and it never fails. The, the play is happening, and there's a fumble. 
And some poor little guy who's never played before, he's usually on the bench, the ball falls right to him. And he bends down, he picks it up, surprises anybody that now he's holding the ball. And he just does the first thing that comes to mind, he starts to run. And he's got that ball and he's running and he sees the end zone. And he's like, I can't believe what's happening. I'm going to score a touchdown. Oh man, what a, this is fantastic. And he's picturing himself. And then he looks to the side and he sees the parents. And what are the parents doing? They're all screaming and, and their hands are up in the air. And what he doesn't see is that they're going... You're going the wrong way. You're go it never fails. You pick up that ball and off you go. And all the parents are going, that way, that way. And he runs into the end zone only to find out that he has scored a touchdown on the wrong side. The lesson we take from that is it doesn't matter how fast you're running with the ball if you're going in the wrong direction. It doesn't matter how zealous you are for what you believe if what you believe is wrong. Because we have this attitude now, this tolerance thing that says, well, as long as you believe it with your whole heart and it works for you, then that's great. Then it must be right or it must be okay. And I want to say it doesn't matter how firmly held your beliefs are or how long established they've been. If you're zealous about them, you can be zealous for something that's wrong as the Apostle Paul was before he was converted. And I love to see then he became, God took that zeal and turned it around. I think about a guy like Lee Strobel. You know the name Lee Strobel? He wrote The Case for Christ. He was a guy who was an atheist. I mean, he was trying to prove that, that Christianity was not true. And as he researched, he found out it was true. And now he's become a prolific writer and speaker, and he's probably, his books have probably led many to Christ. That same desire, that same zeal. What, it is, what is it about you that if Christ could get a hold of it, that zeal that you have or that passion you have for something else, if God got a hold of that passion for his good, or that ability you have, that skill you have, that thing you can do, what if that was fully submitted to Christ? How could he use you? How could he use that? And some of you, it's exactly what's happening in your life. You're God's guy, and, you, and you're God's girl, and you're using those things. I just look in awe at this man, Saul of Tarsus, and how God used him. Verse 3 says, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. He had plans, didn't he? He had his set of plans. He knew he's probably frothing at the mouth as he's getting near Damascus, like he is ready for the battle, ready to grab some of these blasphemers. And suddenly, a light shone around him from heaven. Man, I hate when that happens. That'll change your day, won't it? Man, a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's pretty miraculous if you know the story of Saul of Tarsus' conversion. It's probably the best-known conversion and one of the most important conversions in all of history. It's pretty miraculous. Not everybody, I would guess, if we ran, went around and polled in the room, not everybody has had a conversion experience by a light, Paul would say, shining brighter than the noonday sun, which is pretty bright, especially if you were out yesterday trying to get work done in the yard. It was hot yesterday. And that sun was hot. Now imagine a light brighter than the noonday sun. It was blindingly bright. So much so that he couldn't continue for it. He fell to his knees as he was heading into Damascus. 
And I imagine that not many of us would have that kind of testimony. Some of you might. Some of you maybe had a miraculous testimony. Some of you may be waiting for one. You've been contemplating Christ. You've been considering Jesus. You've been coming to church going, I'm just not feeling it, Pastor. I'm just waiting for the roof to open and the angels to sing. I'm waiting for a feeling. I'm waiting for something, an experience, so that I'll know that I know that I know. You're waiting for a Saul of Tarsus conversion. And you might get that, but you might not. I think it's not coincidental that this falls right on the heels of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. No light from heaven, no fancy miraculous things, just reading the Bible, going, I don't understand it. Philip coming alongside of him and saying, let me preach Jesus to you from Isaiah 53. And as he preached Jesus to him, the Ethiopian eunuch said, well, can I get baptized? Do you believe with all your heart? Yeah. Well, then you can get baptized. Really? Sure. And they did it. That wasn't so miraculous. Or was it? Maybe every conversion is miraculous. Maybe the fact that God can save a soul and change a life and produce righteousness where there was sin, maybe every conversion is miraculous, but every conversion doesn't happen in a miraculous way. One more interesting thing I'll note is that uh, my conversion experience, like Saul of Tarsus, didn't happen in church. I've met people saved at the Billy Graham crusade. I've met people that have come forward during an altar call at church. Can I just tell you the Ethiopian eunuch wasn't in church? And Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus. And that's where God came to him. I was in a parking lot in Charlottesville. Many of you know my story. There was no altar call. There was no praise team. There was no emotional response. I didn't see any light like Saul did, but God spoke to my heart. And just like Saul of Tarsus... It started with a question. Did you see that? Saul, Saul, says his name twice. First of all, it would be pretty disconcerting that this voice knows my name. Like, uh, hmm, that's weird. And Because he, he can't see. He's, he's sort of blinded by this light. Can't see anything. But this voice that knows his name asks a question. Now, we know this was Jesus. Paul's going to say that later on in his life, that he had a, a firsthand experience with Jesus. He would say, I was like one born out of due time, one born late. He wasn't an apostle. He didn't have an experience with Jesus walking on earth as part of his ministry during the three years of Christ's ministry on earth. But Jesus did come to him alive at this time. But he asked him a question. Jesus could have said anything. He could have said, Saul, Saul, prepare yourself. I'm going to take you out. Because you don't mess with my kids. They're my kids. These are my people. I'll show you who's strong. I'll show you who's the predator and who's the prey. And God was, but make no mistake, God was hunting Saul, but not to kill him. God doesn't hunt you to take you out. He hunts you to bring you close. That's what he told his disciples, right? I'll make you fishers of men. You, you fish for fish, but I'm going to make you fishers of men to fish for people, to catch them, to bring them into the kingdom, not to take them out of the world. So I, I like that. He could have made a statement. He could have said so many things Jesus could have said to him. But he says to him, why? 
And that gets back to that issue of what is going on in, in Saul's mind, what's going on in his heart, that he's persecuting the church. What has he not confessed himself? What has he not come to grips with in his own life? As Saul has heard the preaching of Stephen, and he's considering these things, and he's milling them over, and he's trying to resist them, and he's trying to quiet that voice, and Jesus comes to him and says, why are you persecuting me? Do you think it's because Jesus didn't know? Do you think that God in the garden didn't know where Adam was when he said, Adam, where are you? Like somehow God had looked, where'd he go? I put him here just a little while ago, and now he's gone. Like God, God is sovereign and he's all-knowing. He doesn't ask questions because he needs to know. But he asks you questions because he needs you to examine yourself. Because what you think you're doing and why you think you're doing it may really not be why you're doing it. God didn't ask me why. He asked me what? Steve, what are you doing? Stop me in my tracks that day in that parking lot. Steve, what are you doing? I had, by all measures of the world, a decent life. I had a good job, as I tell the story. A good, good job, incredibly handsome, everything going for me. And every time people laugh when I say that. You know I'm kidding, right? Yes, you, yes Steve, we know you're kidding. <laughs> we know you're kidding. I wasn't a drug addict, drug dealer. I wasn't in jail or prison. I didn't have any of those things going. But there were things, there were things, there were things in my life that were causing behaviors that were subtle. And maybe by the terms of the world, normal. You know, when you hang out with sinful people, sin seems normal. But it wasn't normal. It was twisted. It was wrong. And God said to me, Steve, what are you doing? And I had to say, you know, Lord, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't in church, hadn't been going to church. God spoke directly to my heart. And I said, I don't know, what, I don't know why I'm doing this. And then God began to reveal to me in, in that, how long was it? I have no idea how long it was. But he revealed to me that what I was doing was because I was very lonely inside. And so much of what we do as human beings is because we're typically, without Christ, it's easy to be lonely. You can be very lonely. Many of you know this right now. You're going to shake your head and say, you can be here in church around 1,000 people and, and be, well, there's not 1,000 people here, but you know what I'm saying. It's exaggerating. Uh, but you can still be very lonely. And there's a loneliness that can never be satisfied by people around you. It's a loneliness that can only be satisfied by Christ in you. And that was my problem. And so he says, Saul, Saul, why, why, why are you persecuting me? And Saul has to say, well, well, first of all, Lord, who are you? Verse 5 is, well, who are you, Lord? And Lord is a term of reverence. It means sir. It's a term of honor. It, it can be used for a supreme authority or for a master. It's a title of honor. So he says, well, who, <laughs> who, who are you and why do you know my name? How do you know my name? Who are you, Lord? And that's a great question, too. And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And what do you think happened? What gasket blew in his mind when he heard, I am Jesus? He didn't say, I was Jesus. He could have said, I'm Stephen, and I'm coming back to get you. I mean, if I was Jesus, that's what I would say. Like, ha, 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 you know, but that's, that's why I'm not Jesus, because... <laughs> But I think this was worse. 
I am Jesus. Wait a second, you can't be Jesus. He was buried in a tomb and the body was stolen by the disciples. Can't be Jesus. I've staked my whole life on the fact that you were just some kook Messiah wannabe. And that when you died, all your followers would disappear with you. And it's bad enough that they're still out there talking about you. This can't be happening. Because if this is true, if you really are Jesus, then everything changes. Then everything I've thought, everything I've learned, everything I've lived for is now going to change. You want to talk about a disconcerting thought in your life? When he says, I am Jesus, number one, he realizes Jesus is alive. Dead people don't talk to you. You can go to your seances, you can go to your card readers and all that stuff. Dead people don't talk to you. Jesus is alive. And Saul of Tarsus now has to come to grips with that. Not only that, he says, I am Jesus. Look at the next part. Whom you are persecuting. Wait a second. I'm not persecuting you. It's those people who follow you I'm after. And then he says, whoa, wait a second. You mean persecuting the people is like persecuting you? And... If you read 1 Corinthians 12, you'll read of what we call the doctrine of the body of Christ. You've heard it said the church, we're also called the bride of Christ. We're called the body of Christ. Have you used that term? Hey, I'm part of the body of Christ. Well, who wrote that? Paul did. The apostle Paul wrote that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, other places. Where do you think he made that connection? On the Damascus Road. Where he realized that persecuting people was like persecuting Jesus himself. They are equivalent to him. They are his body. And to persecute them, to harm them, is to harm him. And in one sense, it's so comforting to know that whatever it is you're going through, Jesus feels it. When people are persecuted, when people are going through hard things, Jesus says, I'm I'm in that with you. I feel it like you feel it. Because we are one. But can you imagine how, how challenging for Saul of Tarsus When people come down on you, when people come against you, understand that it's not about you. Sometimes people are angry at me, and I realize you're not angry at me. You're just angry. You're angry at God. You're angry at your parents. And I'm just the one that happened to be in the way at the time. Do you know that about people? I mean, that's sometimes people are just, they're angry. They're struggling. There's a war inside the heart of Saul of Tarsus. And the church is just who he's taking it out on. And the war is about Jesus, not about them. Although they are the visible manifestation. And look, look, just to prove it to you, look what Jesus says next to him. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Well, where does that come from? What goads is he talking about? Why does he say that? Because Jesus has looked right into his heart and knows the struggle. To kick against the goads is a word to talk about resisting direction. Resisting authority. If you were to live in that culture and you were to plow your fields with a team of oxen, man, oxen are big, strong animals. And you can't just, you know, always go, you know, come on, you know, go left. They just stand there. How do you get a 3,000-pound animal moving if they don't want to move? So they had a, a big, long stick that would reach from behind the plow to the rear end of that ox And it was pointed, sharp point on the end. And so if you wanted that ox to go, you just start poking him in the rear end with this big, long stick. And eventually, one of two things is going to happen. He's either going to go, 
or he's going to get really mad and start kicking. Well, Saul is described as an oxen that's resisting the goading of Jesus, the goading that happened through Stephen. By the way, I love this. Ecclesiastes, I think it's chapter 12, Solomon says the words of the wise are like goads. When I preach, I hope it's unsettling to you. I hope it challenges you to move in a direction. If it does, then I'm doing my job. Or if you leave here resisting, then I've done my job too. It's up to you what you do with the words that are goading you, that are challenging, that are poking you. You leave here going, I don't like that pastor. He steps on my toes every time I go, good. Good that I'm doing my job. The words of the wise are like goads. The words of the wise move you poke you, prick you in a direction, and encourage you to move in that direction. Or, if you really want to make life hard for yourself, you can kick against that. Because what happens when the ox kicks against the goads? Well, it just means he's going to get it harder next time. When a person resists in that way, it just does damage to you. The longer you resist, the harder it's going to be. You've got children, right? You know, you've, you've tried to punish him. you tried to be gentle. They, they, they won't give into it. So we got to get the old spanker out. You know, when, when the kids were growing up, I used to tell them, I'm going to rev up the spanker. And I'd, you know, I'd, my hand, I'd, you know, I get that thing going. And they'd start laughing. And anyway, we had fun with that. But I'd, I'm going to rev up the spanker. Don't make me do it. Saul was resistant. He, had, he was resisting those words that Stephen had spoken. He was resisting those. It would have been, it's costly for him to get saved. He, he says of himself in Galatians, I was carving out a path in Judaism. He was so spiritually ambitious that he was leading the way in persecution as a demonstration of his zeal. And others were following suit. He was the head of the class, the top of the heap the big kahuna in terms of Judaism, and was so ambitious, he was the valedictorian of his class of zeal in Judaism. And that's what he says about himself. And he stood to lose all of that, if this is true. Verse 6 says, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The voice of submission. That is the greatest question you can ever ask. Because see, a lot of times it's like, I'm a good person. I need a little bit of religion in my life, so I'll go to church and maybe Jesus can help me accomplish some of my goals. So Jesus, we go to prayer. Jesus, here's what I want you to do for me. That's missing it. That makes you Lord and Jesus your servant. But if you're going to call Jesus Lord, that means the appropriate way to, to come to him is to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Having this discussion with a young man, what if I get saved and God makes me do something I don't want to do? I told God I don't want to be a pastor. Don't tell him what you don't want to do. Because it'll make your life miserable, it'll make you do it. No, no, my life is not miserable. God prepared me. See, we worry, oh, what if I do? What if he calls me to be a, a missionary? You know, he could call me to be a missionary in Hawaii. I can do Hawaii. Italy, I can do Italy, right? We can do that. But don't make me be a missionary in some out-of-the-way African community or in, in some strange... You know, I, I used to tease Helga, I want to be called to Siberia. I mean, there's people that need the Lord in Siberia, and she's certain that's not my calling. 
She does not like cold weather. I don't particularly care for cold weather either, but someone's got to go, right? Whatever God calls you to do, whatever he equips you to do, he'll give you a heart to do it, and you'll never go, ah, man, this stinks. It's not like the military where you just get your marching orders and you got to go whether you like it or not. If God's going to call you to do it, then he'll prepare you, and when you do it, you won't have any qualms about it. You'll enjoy it. You'll love it. I can't imagine being anything but a pastor now. As much as I resisted and kicked against the goads, and you'll have the same experience when and if you pray, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Now, again, as the conversation is unfolding, I would have said, if I was Jesus, I would have said, Well, quit killing my people. I mean, stop it. He doesn't have to say that because now it's going to be a natural byproduct of being saved. I think when Saul said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I think he's saved. I think he's had this light. He's down on his knees. He's been humbled. He's been uh, knocked off his high horse, so to speak. And he's saying, Lord, what do you, I'm now, now I'm yours. Now, Lord, what, I'm your servant now. What do you want me to do? And it doesn't give him the whole story. It just says, go into the city. Yeah, I was going to go there anyway. But now, now you're going to go in and you're going to go in a different way. What can change in, in life so quickly? He was going to go in to kill, and now he's going to go in to get filled with the Spirit. Watch what happens. Arise and go into the city. You'll be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. So they heard this voice, but they didn't see anybody. And Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. He was blinded. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, which means the other guys weren't blinded, just Saul, which mirrored or mimicked his spiritual condition. He was spiritually blind. And now he is physically blinded, but his eyes are going to be open spiritually. And then his eyes will be open physically. Watch what happens. They led him by the hand into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. What do you think is chugging along? We'll learn that he was praying during those three days. I think with no stimulus coming in, with the darkness in his mind, he is thinking about what has just happened to him and what this is going to mean for him to become a follower of Jesus, to become saved. Just as you have to consider, what does this mean for me? I mean, everything changes. My group changes. My people I hang with changes. The things I do, everything changes. And where do you think Paul learned as he says to the church, for we walk by faith, not by sight? He had to be guided by this predator, now humble to the point where he has to be, have his hand held to go into Damascus. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, probably the greatest least talked about uh, figure in the New Testament, one of at least. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. Now again, Ananias just hanging out, having tea, whatever, his normal life going on, and God comes to Ananias. God's got him working on a couple of sides here. He's not just, he's got the whole thing working. He comes to Ananias, and Ananias said, here I am, Lord, like, no big deal that I hear the voice of God, and God calls me by name. Said, yeah, what, what do you need now, Lord? Just so familiar with God calling on him. He's a Jew, lives in Damascus, uh, probably not from the, the persecution from Jerusalem. He's probably already living in Damascus. There were uh, a number of Jews already living in Damascus. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, 
and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, probably Saul's prearranged lodging for the time he was going to be in Damascus tearing the church apart. For behold, he's praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. Now, pay attention to that. Notice I just read that, uh, that he might receive his sight. Now, Ananias responds and says, Lord, uh, <clears throat> uh, Lord, uh, I have heard from many about this man and how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Lord, your saints in Jerusalem. I've heard about this guy. He's got a reputation. I know I've been watching the news. I've been watching BBC. I've been hearing the rumors. I've been listening to the news stories about what's happening, the widespread persecution and this guy, this terrorist activity from Saul of Tarsus. He says, uh, you know, I've heard about this, and here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Like, Lord, you know, uh, what, are you, what are you doing? Like, he's come here, he's blind, and Lord, I really think we should leave him that way. I think blindness is a good thing for him. He's not able to do nearly the harm that he was doing in Jerusalem if he's blind. So God, I don't get your deal. Like, I'm not, I'm not hearing you. I'm not understanding why he would want to give this guy his sight back so that he can do more harm. A reasonable question, right? So God says to Ananias, verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go. <laughs> okay. No, I don't think it's... He just says, Ananias, go. Why? For he is a chosen vessel of mine. Whoa. Now, do you know how that must have sounded to Ananias? Wait a second, Lord, you got to choose better. No one, I'm telling you, no one ever would have expected that Saul of Tarsus would become a Christian. And I don't know who it is in your life that you go, you know, there's just no way. How many times have we spent praying against ISIS when maybe we should be praying for their leadership? You know, there are Muslims getting saved, and you can, I'm reading a book right now about that very topic. Who knows the power of your prayer? How long have we spending praying against people in the government or against this thing? Or against, you know, maybe we need to pray for because, you, and you'll think they would never get saved. My son-in-law, he'll never get saved. My dad, my son, my boss, my this, my that, my cohort, never get, no, not in a million years. They're such a devout atheist. They're so steeped in this or that. Hey, maybe they're closer than you think. Maybe there's already some stirring. One person plants a seed. Another person waters it. Stephen planted a seed. It got watered. God brings the increase. He is a chosen vessel. I mean, I selected him. I picked him out specifically of mine to bear my name before the, the Greek word is ethnos, the Gentiles. By the way, as you read through Saul's letters, he will get most of his theology from the book of Isaiah. Read through Isaiah and see how many times God talks about the, the light reaching the Gentiles. Saul had never thought about that before. Or at least he'd written it off because the Gentiles, they were just fuel for the fires of hell. Why would God want to save them? And now he is going to be the very person that's going to take the message to them and he's going to rethink all of Isaiah and go, wow, God, this is not a new plan. It's been your plan all along and you're going to use me to do it. What a great choice for kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. And for, for Saul of Tarsus, for the Apostle Paul, 
the greatest sign of a follower of Jesus Christ is not how they drive a beautiful fancy car or they live in a fancy house and they're prosperous materially. The greatest sign of a follower of Jesus is suffering. That was the validation of his ministry, not blessing, but suffering. That's the validation of a ministry for Jesus Christ. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, notice this, brother Saul. So Ananias did it. He goes to Saul of Tarsus, you know, and, and what could he have said as he sees Saul sitting there? He goes, you're the guy that's torn families apart. You're the guy that's been killing. He could have said, uh, you, but he says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and, and this is the important part, and be filled with the Spirit. He will transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He will go from destroying the church to developing a tremendous ministry and to developing believers and discipling people and perpetuating the very thing he tried to persecute. You'll receive your sight and be filled with the Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. Just notice the order. He received his sight, and then he was baptized. He was filled with the Spirit, and then he was baptized. And, and what was it like, these scales? The word is literally to a flake or something that peels off. And again, representative of all of the years of zealous for the traditions of his religion and zealous for this and all those things, all at once, they come peeling off. His eyes are restored. He looks, he sees Ananias, and he realizes his whole life has changed. Have you had that experience? Have you been through that place where you go, you know what, all of a sudden I see things differently? My perspective, you know, what, what you need, we, we are such good blamers, aren't we? We are the quintessential blamers right now in American culture. It's the school's fault about my kids. It's the government's fault about this. It's the this person's fault about that. It's the this person's fault about that. It's the church's fault. And we're so good at blaming everybody else for everything else in our lives. When all along, the problem was you. That you were lacking Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ will change the way you see your work. Will change the way you see your boss. Yes, it's possible. Yes, it is. Will change the way you see government. Will change the way you see church. Will change the way you see family. Will change the way you see in-laws. Will change, change everything about your life. Change the way you see your children. The scales fell off. When I went to my first Bible study, I remember opening up the Bible and saying, I don't get it. I was already a believer at the time, but I just didn't get it. Maybe you've been there. I just don't get it. And during that Bible study, I would say the same thing, that something like scales fell from my eyes, and all of a sudden I realized, this book is for me. God is speaking to me, and I need to respond. Now, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight. And arose and was baptized. So when he received food, because he hadn't eaten or drank in three days, he was strengthened and he spent some time there with the day, uh, time there with the disciples in Damascus. Now let me close with this thought as I invite um, Phil to come up here and join me. My question to God at that point would have been, God, why'd you wait so long? If you read Galatians chapter one. Paul goes through that whole thing about I was formerly a blasphemer, I was I was this, I was that. And then he says, but when it pleased God. 
Because I asked that in my life. God, you could have saved me from a lot of trouble had you saved me three years earlier than I got saved. Or four years earlier, or ten years earlier. You could have saved me from a whole lot of destruction. A whole lot of lives that I ruined, or things that I did that I'm ashamed of or embarrassed about. Why didn't you save me three years ago, four years ago? And I don't know the answer, and Paul didn't know the answer. Imagine what destruction could have been, what families were destroyed, what people were killed, had the light shown to Saul of Tarsus two years before. But it didn't happen. Why not? I don't know. But all I know is that Paul says, but when it pleased God. God let Saul go through all those things so that he could write in 1 Timothy that he's not worthy to be an apostle. He's the least of all the apostles. Not worthy to be an apostle. That he was an insolent man and so on and so forth. Persecuting the church to death. And then he says, but God did it so that he could show his mercy in me first as an example to all those that would come after. And here's a worthy saying. He says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And it's because Saul of Tarsus went through that that you and I can say, wow, if God can use Saul, he can use me. I don't know what you've done or where you've been or the things you think God can't redeem in your life, but Saul of Tarsus stands as a witness that anybody can be saved. Murderers, pedophiles, religious people. I mean, anybody. There's no one that could say, well, I'm... He says, God came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Saul says, I, am the, I was the chiefest of all sinners. And if God can save me, he can save you too. If God can change my life, he can change your life too. So there's no one that's beyond the, the reach of God. And I don't, if you're resisting God, if you're kicking against the goads, you'll never, you'll never have peace. The voice will never go away. I've been there. I've tried it. We've been there. We've tried it. If God has got you in his sights, if he is hunting you, the best thing I can tell you is just surrender. And the war will be over. And you can finally find the peace you've been looking for in all the wrong places. But you've got to stop resisting. And God will not just save you, but he'll gift you and he'll use your life for a whole different purpose. He'll build for you a life that you never would have expected. Amen? Amen.